perhaps most of us, have heard of Orville and Wilbur Wright, better known by their family and friends as Orv and Will. From Dayton, Ohio, Orville and Wilbur are the ones credited with sending us into the skies, allowing us to fly. They were the first people who had a vision for creating a craft that would lift people above the boundaries of Earth and head skyward. In his recent book, um, David McCullough gives a history of Orville and Wilbur Wright, and I was riveted by his description of their flights, their practice flights, their display flights, first in France, because the United States weren't willing, wasn't willing to pay attention to the significance of their invention, and then later here in the United States. And as McCullough describes the gatherings of people to watch these flights, he says that every day people would travel out into the country, sometimes as far as six miles, to pay attention, to watch, to get a glimpse of people gone skyward. But there were days when they made the journey, and when they arrived, there was no flight. Either the winds were not favorable, or Orville and Wilbur felt like they needed to tinker a little bit more with their machine because they were always careful with regard to safety. The amazing thing to me is that the crowds never complained. They stayed on as long as they could through the day, hoping they'd get a flight in that day, hoping they'd see the skyward spectacle, but if they didn't, they'd head home. But the next day, they came back, and they waited, and they tried again, and eventually they were rewarded, sometimes with a six-minute flight, sometimes with flights lasting longer than an hour. They, the people who were willing to spend the time and energy to arrive at the, at the show field, witnessed something that human, humanity had never seen before in their lives. That group of people, those groups of people that sometimes grew, swelled to over 200,000, remind me of the group of people following Jesus in our text today. They knew that something significant was happening with this healer. They wanted to be there to see what Jesus was going to do. But there was something more than watching a skyward spectacle that drew them to this one who was healing people and seemingly offering life in ways that they had never seen before. And so they followed. They actually pursued Jesus. And in pursuing Jesus, one day, Jesus headed, up to, headed to a mountain, and he recognized once again he was being pursued by a crowd. Without the crowd asking, Jesus intended to feed them. He had an exchange with his disciples that many of us are familiar with, but he determined that he was going to meet 
one of their most basic needs, the need of physical hunger. This was no skyward spectacle that somebody could write in their diary that they'd had a once-in-a-lifetime experience viewing. This was ordinary barley cakes and fish. And these fish were so little that there would be no fish stories told about these little guys. They were more like minnows. And so Jesus received from a small boy fish and bread, and he determined with this small amount he was going to feed the multitudes. Notice the contrast between the multitudes of Israel who were clamoring for manna, who were clamoring for food. They were demanding to be fed because they were in dire straits. And this crowd, they were asking for nothing other than to be with Jesus. And yet, he fed them. He met a need they did not even voice. But in meeting their need, a problem arose. And the problem was this. He apparently did not give them enough. They were grateful for the food. They were grateful that they had eaten to their fill. But in receiving the food and eating to their fill and thinking about all the people who had been healed at Jesus' hands, they wanted more. And they rose up to seize him. This wasn't a gentle nudging. This was a grab him and make him our king. And Jesus took the opportunity to slip away. That's an ending to the feeding of the 5,000 that we don't often hear. And a part of us that are more educated, a part of us that have a perspective on the gospel, would say, well, we can sort of understand their frustration. Even as Susan prayed, they lived in times under Roman rule that were far less than pleasant. They were seeing the ugly side of sin and power. They wanted Israel to be restored. They wanted to live in peace and in shalom. And they wanted Jesus to get on board and do it now. But I think if we're honest, we too may say that we'd like to see him move a little quicker in the circumstances in our lives and in our world. Just last week, I spoke with an archbishop, an Anglican archbishop of um, northern Nigeria, who talked about the Islamic insurgents and Boko Haram that Susan prayed for us with that were infesting the area and making Christian lives miserable. I spoke last week with one of our brothers from India who told me about a new evangelistic tactic now, this is not a Christian evangelistic tactic. It's an Islamic evangelistic attack tactic. And it is encouraging young people, Islamic young people, to marry Christians and Hindus as a mode of evangelism to bring us into the fold. And he said it was being very effective. 
And if we bring it closer to home, some of us are wringing our hands about denominational issues and about decisions of, a, of the Supreme Court and about deep pain in our own lives. And we want to join the people on the hillside that day who were in green pastures and say, Jesus, please do something now to fix our lives and to fix the world. And yet Jesus said, it's not time. It's not time. Interestingly enough, Jesus escapes to the mountain. Jesus' disciples head across the sea without Jesus. And Jesus joins them at night on the sea. Their first response is terror. And their second response should catch our attention. After they, after they heard from Jesus, it is, I do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the land going toward which they were going. They wanted to take him in the boat. Take, taking Jesus in the boat isn't quite as violent as seizing him to be king. But it's still saying you're under our control. And Jesus, we want you at our hands to be our comfort and to do the very things we want. And Jesus' words echo back to us to say, regardless of what we're facing in life on the grand scale or those smaller things in our lives that we might not even give word to us, he says to us, it is I. Do not be afraid. The one who fed the multitudes is the one who is with us today. And his word today for us is stay steady. I am with you. My kingdom is unfolding in your midst. I am about my father's business and my perfect will will be accomplished. Today, as we come to the table, we come not only with physical hunger, but we come with the hunger of those seeking to be fed by our Lord Jesus. And so I invite you now to prepare your hearts to receive in the very way that those 5,000 received so many years ago. <laughs>